This episode of Big Biology is sponsored by Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Founded in 1892, Hopkins Marine Station, located 90 miles south of Stanford's main campus on the Monterey Bay, is the oldest marine laboratory on America's west coast. Hopkins scientists work both locally and at field sites around the world, and their research addresses fundamental questions at every level of marine biology, from genes to ecosystems. For example, a team from Hopkins recently attached cameras to bluefin tuna to understand how they move through their environments. Another team is investigating how to restore tropical reefs using heat-resistant strains of coral. For this episode, we partnered with Hopkins Marine Station to highlight one of their extraordinary scientists. To find out more about research and educational opportunities, visit hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. That's hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. Think of the giant beasts that have lived on Earth. You're probably envisioning Tyrannosaurus rex, towering sauropods, and other massive dinosaurs. While those extinct animals were truly massive, the biggest animal of all time lives today in our modern oceans. The title belongs to the blue whale, a mammal that can reach over 30 meters in length and weigh over 190 tons. That's more than 30 African elephants. And the blue whale isn't the only one. Humpbacks, sperm whales, and several other species grow larger than any modern land animals. These ocean giants have also evolved amazing innovations that bolster their success, like sonar for seeing prey in the depths, baleen for filtering huge volumes of seawater, and hearts that support deep-sea diving. When you take a close look at modern whales, they can seem downright alien. What enabled and what drove the evolution of such large size? And how can huge filter-feeding whales sustain themselves on crustaceans no larger than your thumb? From the fossil record, we can see that whales ballooned in size only in the past few million years. That's around the same time that we start to see some major shifts in climate, new kinds of competition, and new patterns of food distribution in the oceans. Our guest today, Jeremy Goldbogen, is an expert on whales at the Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford University. For the past few years, he's been attaching data loggers to blue whales to learn more about their biology. Whales present a great opportunity to understand the effects of size on life processes. How does gigantism influence key processes like heart rate and metabolism? For example, in a recent paper, Jeremy reports that the 400-pound heart of a blue whale beats only twice per minute during a deep dive. So we wanted to know, okay, what is, what is a heart like this doing at such a large scale? And also, if it does experience... Um, that decrease in heart rate, which we call bradycardia, how is that all sort of coming together? And the third element is, okay, the cost of feeding presumably is very high. Um, a very energetically demanding feeding behavior, large size and diving bradycardia. How does that all combine? And, and what is the heart doing? And so that's what we want to know. On this episode, we discuss the biggest life on land and in the oceans. What conditions have fostered the evolution of giant size and how ecological advantages enabled tooth and baleen whales to evolve behemoth size independently? I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is... The 50th episode of Big Biology. We want to talk about your work on, on the biggest animals in the world. And let's just start by having you tell us what are those biggest animals and how many times have they evolved large size? Oh, yeah. So I, I tell my students all the time that we're living in a time of giants because um, if you look into the fossil record, you have big rodents, you have big turtles, giant penguins. Um, big insects. But really, yeah, big insects too, absolutely. <laughs> but what's so cool about right now is we have uh, really the largest animals of all time, um, namely large whales, so the great whales. So you have sperm whales, of course, are this classic example of gigantism, and also uh, baleen whales, several different uh, species, different lineages, uh, convergently evolved big body size um, really recently in evolutionary history. So just in the last few million years, uh, we saw the evolution of uh, ocean giants. And so it's a fun time to be a student and um, a unique opportunity to actually study how animals operate at such large scales. That seems like such a blink in geologic time, just a couple of million years. So why why weren't there big whales before that? 
Yeah, it's something we've been thinking about for a while. Um, and, you know, the, the great whales are sort of characterized by these two very amazing innovations, these functional innovations, echolocation and tooth whales uh, and filter feeding and baleen whales. Um, uh, but those innovations actually evolved about uh, 30 million years ago. Um, but we don't see gigantism until about um, three to five million years. Uh, so there's clearly that those innovations alone weren't enough to drive gigantic body sizes in these lineages. Um, and so we think it might have been something to do with the food supply. So those, those innovations were in place for these animals to forage uh, and take advantage of food in the ocean. But there was something that happened in the ocean, we think, um, sort of in the Pleistocene, about uh, three to five million years ago. Uh, something happened in the ocean that provided the right food sources in the right way that allowed these animals to really exploit energy from the ocean and promote much larger body sizes. And just in a few million years, we go from animals that were almost elephant size in the in the ocean, about five to... Just, just merely large. Yeah, just merely, <laughs> yeah, about five to seven meters in body length, maybe, um, you know, similarly five to seven tons in, in body weight, up to uh, today's blue whales, for example, which can almost reach 30 meters, uh, easily exceeding 100 tons in body weight. Um, so it's pretty rapid evolution of body size uh, in those lineages. And it didn't just happen in blue whales. You also have humpback whales that get up to about 15 meters, uh, easily exceeding 50 tons in body weight. Bright whales and bowhead whales, totally different lineage, also getting really, so, really big. So let's circle back around to something you said a few minutes ago, which is three to five million years ago, something in the ocean changed. So I think the implication is the amount of food changed. So so what what was it that drove that and what, what happened? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it's I think it's a little more than than the amount of food, um, because if you right now, if you take all the food in the ocean and you distribute it equally, filter feeding whales could not survive. Um, that's because for every gulp of the ocean that they filter, um, the food would be so dilute. They're just the, the cost of feeding would outweigh the energy intake from the food. So it has to be clumpy. And this this idea of patchiness is something that we talk about all the time. Um, the food is patchy. Uh, the, the ocean is patchy. The food is, is uh, hierarchically distributed in these patches. So you have patches within patches uh, for the food resource. And filter feeding is a great way to exploit a patchy resource. Um, and so what happened um, in the ocean, at that Pleistocene boundary, is that upwelling in the ocean got really intense. The cool connection to the modern system is we, um, on, on this coast at least, we talk about wind to whales. Uh, in the spring, we have a lot of wind. Uh, the, that wind takes the surface waters away from the coast, and that surface water is replaced with deep water, cold, nutrient-rich, uh, deep ocean water. And that brings the nutrients to phytoplankton. So you have this tr trophic cascade, a lot of phytoplankton, a lot of zooplankton, and a lot of krill and fish that whales can exploit. So uh, wind to whales, we have uh, the, a lot of wind in the springtime. We have the phytoplankton blooms. And then we have these formation of a lot of patches of whale food in the form of krill and fish. And sure enough, there's that sequence. You see the winds, you see the blooms, and then you see the whales arrive right on time to exploit that ephemeral resource. Um, and there's great evidence that show the amount of upwelling is um, directly determines the number uh, of patches and also the density of, of those krill and fish patches. Um, what's interesting about that is you get too much upwelling, that can be bad. So there's sort of this optimal um, level of upwelling. Too little, not enough food. Too much, you can actually advect all the food offshore and then it gets uh, diluted and oh, whales can't. Huh. Yeah, either whales can find it or it becomes dilute or it's exploited by other animals uh -huh. or something like that. So, so just so I can envision what a patch is for a whale, are we talking about spots that are kilometers across or meters across or, or what? Okay, uh, krill, krill patches are fish patches. Uh, yes. 
Either one. Okay. Yeah. So so for krill patches, it can vary. They can be um, very small on the order of something that you could actually have in your living room. Uh, and some of the krill patches that we've seen, for example, blue whales feeding on off the coast of California, they can be um, tens of meters in depth and uh, several kilometers in length. So it really just depends. Um, yeah, we've seen uh, these giant krill patches in canyons uh, off the coast of California here in Monterey Bay. Um, and even though they're very big, they can sometimes move. Um, and we think that's because they migrate up towards the ocean at night and some of the surface currents can actually take them over to a different canyon and they'll sink back down into another canyon. And so sometimes when we're working with blue whales in one canyon, uh, we go back to port and we come back out to the same canyon the next day and the blue whales are gone, but actually they just jumped to another canyon. So it's a, it's a really dynamic uh, foodscape or prayscape. Um, you know, blue whales could be on the spot really exploiting a great krill patch and the next day they could be gone. Um, and so these animals have somehow figured out how to track these, these prey patches um, and take advantage of this great food source that's only around for a couple of months in the summer. Um, and these animals really need to bulk up and, and build those lipids uh, in order to fuel their migrations across uh, the ocean. And, and so they eat very little the rest of the year? I mean, most, most of their calories are taken yeah, in the last couple of months? There's a little bit of evidence that suggests they, they might snack along the way on, on a migration stop. Uh, but most of their food intake seems to be occurring in the summer months. Okay, so um, we want to get into the, the sort of two different pathways by which the two different lineages of whales became big. I, Art and I talked online before we started chatting with you. We both find that incredibly fascinating, so we want to make sure we give enough time to both of those stories. Um, but, I, but I think that there was an innovation for both groups that led to the evolution of body size, and, and we've been alluding to it already. It's diving. Right, it's the fact that there's an opportunity, and maybe there's a motivation for food at depth that's maybe not being exploded by some of the other organisms. That diving was a big reason that the evolution of this massive size became possible. Yeah, and if the the good food is deep, um, and for both lineages, so the larger squid and fish are can be found deep uh, in the ocean for echolocating tooth whales, and also really higher density krill patches can be found deep as well. So that's an advantage. So a diving is an advantage for both tooth whales and baleen whales. Um, some of our studies suggest that um, fin whales can quadruple their energy intake by diving deep. Uh, so even if there are krill patches, uh, more shallow locations, you might think, oh, they can save the energy uh, by not diving and just feed on the krill patches that are uh, shallow. But the, there's so much more dense uh, there, there are more dense krill patches at depth. And so even though that takes more time and energy to dive deep into the ocean, uh, that investment is worth it. And um, they can increase their energy intake per unit time uh, by, by diving deep. Because otherwise, why would you dive deep? You could just wait for the krill to, to migrate up to the sea surface at night and then it just exploit uh, the krill patches that way. But the really interesting part about krill um, life history and biology is when they migrate up to the, towards the sea surface, they actually disperse. So effectively, the density goes down. Um, the, re the really fun thing is um, when you have a tag on, for example, a blue whale overnight, you can actually, uh, a blue whale that's feeding during the day uh, goes down for about 10 to 15 minutes, executes several feeding lunges, uh, goes up to the sea surface and can, uh, repeatedly doing these deep foraging dives all day long. And as dusk arrives, the krill patches start to migrate up towards the sea surface and disperse. And the blue whale is actually still feeding on that krill patch as it's migrating towards the sea surface. And as soon as the sun sets, the whale stops feeding. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and that's because it just can't see where they are anymore. Yeah, that's or, or, or then, they're too dispersed and it's not worth it. Yeah, this is why field biology is so awesome because now we have a new new set of questions. Can they not yeah. see the food, or do they somehow can sense the density of the krill patches, and they've decided it's no longer towards their advantage to continue to feed through the night? Um, this is not published yet. Uh, one of my students uh, just discovered this, but 
Usually at night, blue whales are not feeding. However, when there's a full moon, we do see whales can feed at night and almost all night. Uh, so that's, uh, you would think that would help us, but that, that, <laughs> that could mean two things, right? Is there something about the moon that causes the krill to go back together? And so the density is still high, even though they're up towards the sea surface. Or now can the blue whale see the food, even though it's dispersed, and then they take advantage? Um, yeah, why are the krill denser at depth? I mean, is that an anti-predation defense? It, yeah, presumably, yeah, great anti-predation uh, defense uh, for everything other than filter-feeding whales. <laughs> yeah, there's this, um, this, this idea of the rare enemy effect. So if these animals evolved uh, anti-predator strategies for tens of millions of years for particulate feeders. So by particulate, I mean, um, you know, something like a fish or a tooth whale even that feeds on one prey item at a time. So that's mm -hmm. the contrast mm -hmm. to filter feeding. Um, and so if animals have evolved uh, anti-predator strategies to um, defend against animals that feed on one prey at a time, if you're in a group, that's an advantage. But if you're in a group and you're a filter feeding whale and you take a big gulp of that entire group, then all of a sudden it sort of backfires. So that's, that's the concept of the rare enemy effect. Well, man, there's, there's so many things to, to talk about. Uh, but just briefly, I mean, how do, you, how do we think that, tooth, that, that gigantism evolved in, in the tooth whales? Yeah, the, I would say that the, the pattern of body size evolution in tooth whales is less understood, at least in terms of... Um, uh, mode and tempo uh, of body size evolution in tooth whales. You know, of course, we have giant sperm whales today, and if you go into the fossil record, you don't really see anything quite that big. Um, there's a couple of examples. Um, and so, and of course, the modern sperm whales look like they evolved size, evolved gigantism also very recently as well. So, you know, perhaps not only was there more patchiness of resources uh, in the in the modern ocean in the last couple million years, but also uh, maybe there was just overall more abundance. So, in, and presumably you can't have more patchiness without more abundance. So maybe the changes that occurred in the last several million years were really good for a lot of marine life, not just filter feeding whales. Um, and uh, I've always wondered whether um, the deep sea is also patchy as well. And so that would certainly uh, help a single prey feeding tooth whale using echolocation as well. Um, right. But yeah. That was, a, that was a part of it too, right? That they have this special innovation of biosonar that Absolutely. sort of opens a door that wasn't there before, right? Absolutely, okay. yeah. Yeah, and I, I sort of think of biosonar and, and echolocation tooth whales as sort of like this flashlight if you were in a dark room. And... The sperm whales have uh, echolocation uh, that is an order of magnitude more powerful than sm smaller tooth whales. So that allows them to, you know, uh, insonify a greater volume of the ocean and, and increase their chances. It really helps uh, sperm whales find better food, and by better food, larger squid. What's cool is that some of my colleagues have put similar tags on, on sperm whales and, and other beaked whales, um, and they're acoustic tags, of course, because we put video tags on baleen whales because the footage is just incredible, but the acoustic tags are amazing to listen to. We got some audio from one of these acoustic trackers to demonstrate what Jeremy is talking about. The sound was recorded by Mark Johnson, a scientist at St. Andrews University. So like the search pattern for a sperm whale might sound like this. And then when it gets, when it thinks it's found its prey, right? It gets closer and closer and that provides greater uh, space and time resolution for those, those that, that, uh, that echo scene. Uh, and so it can find the prey uh, that way. Um, and it, it's very cool. I wish I, I wish my fingers can do it, but it becomes this buzz, this buzz click train. Uh, all the way up until prey capture. Yeah, and with a, we have these great movement sensors in these tags now, so you can actually see an acceleration. We call it a jerk, which is the rate of acceleration right that occurs right when prey capture occurs. You can actually get success rates too. 
um, as well. And so if, if the prey capture event was successful, uh, there's no clicks uh, right afterwards. But if it was unsuccessful, you, you could actually see uh, in terms of the echoes that the prey is escaping. Oh, no kidding. Huh. Uh, and so, some of my colleagues, they do some incredible stuff. So they can actually, if it's a fish, they can actually see the tail going back and forth in the echoes as well. What? And, That's um, outrageous. If you, if you use scaling of stroke frequency, then you can uh, calculate the size, size of the fish. The yeah. Fish size, yeah. So wow. it's just one fun Amazing. thing after another. We mixed in some whale calls to the music you're listening to. The pulses you're hearing right now are from a blue whale that Jeremy himself recorded. Later on, you'll hear some whale songs recorded by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. Those calls have been sped up to make them easier to hear the low rumbling frequencies. Studying the largest animals on Earth gives Jeremy a powerful way to study questions of allometry or how biological traits scale with body size. Life on Earth ranges in size from tiny microbes to, well, whales. And it turns out that body size affects most traits of living things. Big animals aren't simply small animals scaled up. As size increases, traits like heart rate, reproductive rate, and lifespan also increase, but less than expected. For instance, as organisms get bigger, the metabolic efficiency improves. A cat is about 100 times bigger than a mouse, but it only uses about 32 times as much energy. Whales lie at the very extreme of the size continuum, and we asked Jeremy a few questions about how their massive size affects their physiology. I, I wanted to ask, get, get back to this idea of, of allometry and thinking about what changes with, with body size and, and sort of think about that in relation to foraging very deep, deep in the ocean. And in some of your papers, you have these arguments about you know, the many things that change as body sizes become larger and larger. And, and part of it is that it becomes easier to spend long times and spend less energy right at the great depths that are necessary to get these great rewards, right? So, so what, what's the balance there of like, um, you know, how long can you stay underwater as a function of your body size and how much energy do you have to spend doing that? So bigger animals dive deeper. So why is that? So thinking about the, the scaling of physiology that might uh, underlie that phenomenon. And so as you get bigger, you have more oxygen, right? But of course, we all know that uh, an animal twice the size does not have a metabolic rate that is, is twice that of the smaller. Um, and so animals have more oxygen and they use that oxygen much more efficiently. In summary, animals can dive deeper because they have more oxygen. And, and so the oxygen is distributed throughout their volume, right? But their metabolic rate is not proportional to their volume. It's proportional to something less than that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you make the prediction, if you make the calculation and the, the scaling prediction that um, oxygen stores are isometric and metabolic rate exhibits negative allometry, that, that predicts that animals, bigger animals should dive deeper. And indeed, that's... Broadly speaking, that's what you see. However, there are some really interesting departures from that uh, scaling prediction. And that's one of the fun things about scaling is not uh, which animals are on the line, but which animals depart from the line and for what reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes there are these functional trade-offs. So there are animals that are big and can dive deep, but animals like blue whales don't dive as deep as you would predict. Um, and you see for, at the upper extreme of body mass, you see sperm whales are very good divers and blue whales are not very good divers. And that has to do with functional trade-offs uh, associated with foraging. Of course, there are a lot of different physiological adaptations to enhance diving capacity as well. So increased myoglobin. Uh, and so that can really uh, bolster the oxygen stores for animals that they can use uh, to extend dive duration for a, at a given body mass. Um, so, so is that and, what sperm whales have? They just have denser myoglobin. Yeah, they're they're muscles greater, super greater blood dark. volume also, or uh, yeah, um, yes, absolutely, hmm. yeah. So, and that's that's a general adaptation that we see in a lot of different marine mammals is a uh, greater proportion of their body uh, is has more blood in it than a terrestrial mammal. Hmm. Uh, and is and the so, hematocrit really high too? Do they have like super thick blood? 
Yes, and some, and some, especially some of the uh, really amazing divers like beaked whales, which are just they just dive for crazy amounts of time, like two hours long, and several kilometers deep. I mean, that's just crazy that they can hold their breath for that long, forage <laughs> in the deep ocean, and just do that all the time. It's just totally uh, uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, blue whales, they should be diving for at least an hour, but the maximum dive duration that we see for blue whales is about 15 minutes. Uh, um, if they're calling, they can dive a little bit longer, so 20 minutes. Um, but we, we often interpret that limited foraging dive time, uh, we associate that with the energetic cost of feeding. So if you're taking a big gulp of water, um, a lot of energy is involved in that. It's a very dynamic process. They accelerate to high speed. They open their mouth at high speed. So presumably the drag is very high. So there's a lot of energy required in taking that big gulp of water that then is filtered out and leaves the food inside the mouth. And so if they're using a lot of energy, even though they have that large body size, they sort of are mortgaging their dive capacity in order to filter feed at depth. Um, so that, that trade-off makes sense for blue whales. All right, so let's talk about this heart rate um, study that you had, I guess you published in PNES um, last year. And uh, I I want you to tell us about how you did it and, you know, spend a little time on the series of lucky events that had to happen to ever even get the data in the first place. But what did you learn recently? I mean, what was the purpose in the context of the evolution of size? Why did you want to know about the heart? What expectations did you have for malometry? And then what did you find that wasn't so expected? Yeah, so, yeah, in our continuing adventures of what is the physiology of life at this scale and, and extremes of physiology, right? So, and yeah, when you have a, a heart that's that big, how does it function? And also, uh, what we know from other diving marine mammals is that there are some really um, dramatic changes in in cardiac function. So there's this dramatic change in heart rate when these animals are diving they decrease their heart rate um, and uh, presumably that's to uh, conserve oxygen uh, their shunting of blood away from the periphery and so there's a there's a whole suite of adaptations that allow these animals uh, to dive uh, and enhance their dive duration so we wanted to know okay what is what is a heart like this doing at such a large scale and also if it does experience um, that decrease in heart rate, which we call bradycardia, how is that all sort of coming together? And the third element is, okay, the cost of feeding presumably is very high, um, a very energetically demanding feeding behavior, large size and diving bradycardia. How does that all combine and, and what is the heart doing? And so that's what we want to know. Uh, and this is work that uh, we did with Paul Ponganis at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, and I did a postdoc with him uh, measuring uh, heart rate in emperor penguins. And so we were sort of brainstorming, could we do this with a blue whale? How can we modify this heart rate recorder? It's a, it's a digital electrocardiogram. Uh, so two, two electrodes that you attach to the surface of the skin in a diving animal. And you can, uh, if it's in the right place, uh, and you have good um, signal to noise ratio. You can you can uh, measure digitally the heart rate. Um, the challenge. What's your right place? How big of a window are you talking about with right place? Yeah, that's the challenge you were about to talk about. Yeah, Sorry. and you know, and when you have an animal like a, an emperor penguin, you can briefly hold the penguin and you can get the electrodes in the right place, right? And you can do that with a dolphin too, if you were, um, if you were able to um, ethically hold a dolphin like that and, and put the the electrodes in the right place. Um, but with a whale that's in the wild, a blue whale that's traveling at uh, four meters per second and there's high seas and you're in a boat, how do you, there's no time to like say, okay, let's put it here and let's put the other one here. So <laughs> take what you can get. Right. Yeah. So we're like, okay, let's, let's try to, um, quite, and, and how we attach our, our tags are with suction cups. And so we usually have four suction cups. Uh, arranged in a rectangle. And so with two electrodes, so we decided to put them sort of kitty corner. Uh, and so two of the suction cups would hold, uh, uh, each one would hold an electrode. 
um, and we had a an O-ring sort of uh, on the border of, of that electrode, and a little bit of um, what I call arts and crafts engineering, where we just try to, to sort of make something that works. And I can send you pictures of the tag. It doesn't look pretty, yeah. but, but it worked. Um, and I'm all about uh, that kind of engineering in my lab. Yeah, right. we do. yeah. We love it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if it works. Yeah. Where's the crazy glue? Um, and, uh, and so we thought, okay, maybe if we can get this in just the right position and where we think the, the whale's heart is, which is just, um, adjacent to the left flipper. And so we had this great approach. Uh, one of my students uh, was able to get the tag just in that spot where we thought the, the, the heart would be. The tag stayed on for about nine hours and, and collected just a beautiful, nearly complete electrocardiogram. Um, and the data was really interesting because, um, you know, there's that classic bradycardia, that decrease in heart rate during a, a dive, down to about two beats per minute was the lowest. Um, and during a lunge feeding event, uh, we did see a little bit of what we call an exercise modulated bradycardia. So there was a bit of increase in heart rate, uh, during the lunge. And then during that filter phase, uh, which for a blue whale is about a minute. So they take that gulp in about, you know, six to 10 seconds, they double their body size, all of that water is inside the mouth. And it takes about a minute for all of that water to be filtered out. Uh, and then the, the heart rate during that filter phase would also would go back down to those those low heart rates of about um, uh, two to four beats per minute. And then the uh, what's what's the re- regular resting heart rate? Something yeah. on the order of thirty or yeah. The whole concept of what is a resting heart rate is really interesting <laughs> now, right? Well, yeah, yeah. sure, sure. And, you know, I think the one way we could get that is when we have a blue whale at night not feeding. Then then we might have something like a true resting heart rate. And there's some. Like um, uh, some of our work in the Antarctic uh, humpback whales, they are you can see them logging at the sea surface during the day. Uh, for some reason, humpback whales in the Antarctic feed m- more at night and, and some, uh, some parts of the season. Uh, that might be, if we can get a heart rate tag on one of those whales, I think we'll get truly resting heart rate. But when a whale is, um, um, it's either diving or it's not diving. And so you get that, you get that bradycardia during the dive and then at the at the sea surface you have um, a tachycardia, and so the heart rates get very high. Um, and in order to presumably rapidly um, kind of flush uh, reload out the oxygen, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah, off gas CO two, reload oxygen, pay back that oxygen debt, and get ready for the next dive. Um, and so even uh, our tag did stay on through the night. Although the whale was still sort of diving, it wasn't really logging. So there's still a little bit of, even though at night when the whale was not feeding, you still saw a pretty dramatic change in heart rate. Uh, so even if the whale would go down to, say, 30 meters and just be pretty chill, the heart rate would still go pretty low. Not as low as when there was a deep forging dive that was much longer. Um, so you still get that, um, that cardiac scope of you know two beats per minute up to about 35 beats per minute and the, the other crazy thing is if you look at the duration of the heartbeat itself it's about two seconds uh for that Whoa. heart to beat yeah one one thousand two one thousand um yeah and if you think about 30 beats per minute right that's about as fast as that heart can probably beat to give you a sense of the difference this is how fast a blue whale's heart beats at the surface about 30 beats per minute And this is how fast it beats at the bottom of a dive, about four beats a minute, and sometimes lower. And we, pre- and we see this in a lot of other diving marine mammals where they're really at these physiological extremes. They're, that heart is beating really fast at the sea surface in order to you know, have a short uh, surface interval so they can get back down uh, and continue to forage. I want to ask just one more uh, feeding question, and then we're going to move on and talk about some kind of future ideas. Um, but you're talking about the whales taking these giant mouthfuls of water and taking a minute to filter it all out or a few minutes. How, how much krill is there left in their mouth when they're done? Like, like what, what, what's the size of a bite? Yeah, so um, it, it, it all depends on, on the krill density. Um, 
And so on average for blue whales, based on our measurements, and so what we do when we tag a blue whale, for example, we have these, uh, this device called an echo sounder, uh, and we use multiple frequencies of sound, and depending on the echoes of that sound and using some calibration uh, techniques, you can actually estimate the biomass of food in the water. And so whether that's uh, fish or krill, um, if you know the target strength of krill, for example, and you can, you can measure the amount of energy in that krill or the typical amount of energy in krill, you can, you can calculate the biomass. And if, if you can line up in space and time those, those echo sounder measurements with the, the tag foraging data, uh, what we have done is, is put, the, put together these calculations of, of how much food they can actually ingest and eat during a foraging dive or in a single uh, mouthful. So for a blue whale on average, you might get about 600 kilograms of krill in a single gulp. 600 about, kilograms. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, it is, it is about 100, you know, for a blue whale, it can easily be um, uh, on the order of 100 cubic meters of water. Um, wow. Again, if you don't believe me, I can send you these pictures. No, <laughs> this is, I, I this is actually happening. Well, you're the guy. It's just crazy. <laughs> wow. And also, you're, you're, you know, it's a lot of the mo- Right, and think about the momentum transfer of a blue whale, how big a blue whale is. It's going from four meters per second, and a lot of that momentum is imparted to the engulfed water mass. And so the engulfed water is starting at rest, and... and uh, will be accelerated and a lot of that momentum from the whale is, is transferred to the water. Um, yeah, so that 600 kilograms of krill, it's about a half a billion calories. Um, so for um, a typical 10 minute dive for a blue whale, and there's about four feeding events per dive, that's about a billion calories from krill. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you make calculations, uh, some assumptions about metabolic rate and how much um, energy that animal has expended during that dive, uh, it's about uh, twenty million calories. Uh, but so, and you take one divide one by the other, energy in divided by energy out, you get what we um, often refer to as efficiency. It's about two hundred. Um, so a pretty efficient. Uh, do do you want the do you want the sperm whale comparison? Uh, oh well, if you're gonna what, say you like really that, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> do you want do you want the case of a sperm whale feeding on medium squid or giant squid? Oh, giant! Oh, easily. oh it has to be giant. Oh, giant! Yeah. yeah. Well, in that you know that brings up an important point. This you know sperm whales feeding on giant squid is this classic motif, right? This iconic mm-hmm. motif. Somebody wrote a book about that or a movie or <laughs> something. Yeah, right. At some point. Something yeah. like that. But if you look at the frequency of the beaks, uh, and that's the leftover material of an, uh, a squid that's been eaten by a whale in stomachs of whales that have stranded, uh, assuming that's not a biased data source, which maybe it is, but the frequency of those beaks in stomachs of sperm whales suggests that giant squid is a, is a rare item. So maybe it's, a, maybe it's a special meal for these animals. But typically they're feeding on uh, uh, medium-sized squid. That, that's sort of a worldwide extrapolation. There are populations of, uh, of sperm whales that sort of specialize on, on giant squid. They feed less often, right? Because presumably giant squid are, are um, just not as abundant as medium or smaller squid. Now, um, what's a medium-sized squid? I mean, how, how big are you? It's yeah, still a pretty big squid, right? Yeah, it's about a, a kilogram. Yeah, so it's okay. a little over two pounds. Yeah, but so uh, some of our um, the tag data from our colleagues about nine feeding events in a one-hour dive. Um, that would give a sperm whale about 5 million calories. Um, if you make some uh, guesses about how much uh, energy is spent from metabolism, about 2 million calories. That gives, you, that gives a sperm whale feeding on medium squid about an efficiency of like 2 to 3. But if a sperm whale is feeding on giant squid, uh, that's about 24 kilograms. That's a, that's a big squid. That's over 50 pounds. Uh, that's 15 million calories. Um, so one hour dive, but for fewer feeding events, it's about 12 million calories overall. That gives uh, a sperm whale feeding on giant squid an efficiency of about 20. So not quite as good. So they should as, prefer giant squid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things we, we hypothesize in, the, in, in our recent paper is uh, maybe giant squid are just not that abundant. 
Um, if they were, sperm whales presumably would be feeding them. Or maybe they're harder to capture. Yeah, exactly. One from out of left field, and you can tell me to shut up because this is going to be definitely the craziest direction we've gone in yet. Um, I do a lot of work with comparative immunology, and my colleagues and I have been finding that big animals, mammals and birds, big species, have very different immune systems than small ones. And it's not my episode. We're not going to go into all the details of what that is, but what we've not been able to do is get many data on whales. So channel your inner immunologist what do we know do we know anything about whale immunology Ooh. i imagine we know something about dolphin Im- immunology from all the aquarium uh work yeah i no, i yeah that's a good question okay i'm just curious it, as to whether they stand out when you when you and art were talking about you know sort of different blood chemistry and the high hematocrit there's some really interesting things. Without going too much into the details, one particular cell type tends to become very, very common, highly concentrated, and disproportionately so in big species. And if you were to extrapolate out what happens in blue whales, I would start to worry about how the blood even gets circulated through the vasculature because you've got so many of those cells. Jeremy, he's just there. trying to get out on a cruise with you so he can get some Yeah, I know. When can you give blood? me some blood? That's <laughs> where we're going with this. <laughs> Come on. Call a spade put, a spade. I'll put the request <laughs> you, in. Wait, will that decrease inflammation? That kind um, of immune response? Well, I was going to be... So this is actually, it's, this, these are the neutrophils that are doing this. So these are the cells that are implicated in pretty intense inflammatory responses. But, you know, that's not to say that that's the whole readout, that these big things are hyper-inflammatory. That wouldn't be the expectations for reason we don't have to go into. So there's probably all sorts of other mitigation mechanisms for, you know, the presumed collateral damage that would come up with that. But, yeah, I mean, if you if there's ever a chance to get some blood from any of the whales that you're working on, love to see it. Okay. Have you heard of Pito's Paradox? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you about cancer in whales, too. <laughs> that's my that's my fun. That's my favorite. Um, that's my favorite defense question for students. <laughs> yeah. So you, do you want to talk about Pito's paradox and what you know? About, I um, actually I'm not that familiar with it. I wish I knew more about it. But, you know, presumably, you know, if you're big, you live a long time and you have cells that divide for a long time, you should have you know, disproportionately higher rates of cancer, right? That's my understanding. Right, right. That's the expectation, yeah. Yeah, so... the paradox is that it's not not obviously the case, right? Yeah, Yeah. so maybe there is, you know, this is why we should study whales, right? Where's the NIH grant? Where's the (laughs) NIH We need another reason. (laughs) (laughs) Replication is going to be a problem with those studies, but hey, I'm in. If you want to submit that proposal, listen. Yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, yeah, it's hard to get, like, it's hard to get internal samples from whales, right? It's hard to get blood and... You know, and if you do, it's a stranded animal and it's been dead a while. So that really limits what you can do. But what we can do is um, get biopsy samples, and that's using a crossbow. And there's a little bit of a um, there's a tip on the crossbow that has it's basically a cylinder, a stainless steel cylinder that basically takes a, a punch biopsy. Um, and so things that we could get very easily is um, you know skin and blubber. So if there's some kind of study to be done on, you know, related to, you know, uh, cancer inhibition, uh, upregulation of some genes that um, are associated with uh, uh, um, decreasing cancer, um, maybe there, that's, that's one, uh, you know, way we could get some samples from a, a wide yeah. range well, of that's, species. That's too. eminently doable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there you could just, you know, P, P53 is a commonly studied gene. You know, there's neat stuff about P53 copies in elephants and those sorts of things. So you could either look at sequence variation or expression differences. There's a lot of opportunities Absolutely. there. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I had to t- take us on with yeah. immunology a little bit as I almost always do, but. Um, and there's yeah. a, man, the one thing we've, uh, have a new appreciation for by attaching these camera tags to, to whales is how gross their skin is. They're really, uh, it, it varies on, it varies by species and by location. Uh, but like blue whales in the Eastern North Pacific, they're just sloughing the skin off. And that's actually, if it's too, um, if, if it's too sloughy, um, the, sometimes the tags just kind of slide off. 
Oh, yeah, and we can see it on the tags. I can send you these pictures in the video. It's just like, huh. Um, huh. and so uh, there's also some cool stuff when when we have tags on, for example, humpback whales in the Antarctic. They stay on really well. There's very little sloughing, um, and uh, there's some indication that uh, whales that do migrate. Uh, when they migrate to warmer areas, they sort of, um, we call it getting a new paint job where they sort of, it almost looks like the skin is regenerating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it almost looks like their skin is regenerating really fast. Uh, and then, but when they go to these colder climates, it looks like that has all sort of been shut down. So I, so I, I bet if I were the head of NIH, I would say, you know, we really need to figure out what's going on with skin in cetaceans because I, you know, the yeah. microbiome is probably... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some recent, uh, this is the last thing I'll say on this, but there's some new cool evidence that in frogs, that's protective against skin fungal infections, particularly this BD fungus that we know about. Um, so it's totally reasonable that it's protective in potentially multiple capacities, but that would be something interesting to explore later. This is why comparative physiology is so cool. Hey, it's the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. I want to ask about the, the vulnerability of whales uh, to climate change and uh, thinking about, you know, these really giant baleen whales relying on very tiny prey items that are occurring at very high density and in relation to things like um, ocean warming and ocean acidification. So, uh, you know, have you or others made projections about what's going to happen to these patches and what will be the consequences for the, the ocean giants? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't think we have enough data to say one way or the other, whether, um, you know, with climate change, we are likely to see winners and losers and whether filter feeding whales are winners or losers with that. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. It all depends on the patchiness, right? So if there's something, you know, it might not be a direct consequence of, of global warming, but if there's some indirect consequence that, um, it really changes the, the upwelling system if it's if the upwelling is too much, if there's too much uh, wind-driven upwelling, then all of those curl patches can be advected offshore, and that patchiness that is so um, important for baleen whales is no longer there. Then then mm -hmm. whales will be in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but if if there's more upwelling to a point where there's just more patchiness and more food, uh, that could potentially be a good thing Monster. for whales. Yeah. yeah. Is anything um, known about what acidification will do to krill? Is anybody? Yeah, I don't know if anyone's looked at that. Um, hmm. You know, the the exoskeleton of krill is chitin. I've, from what I understand, I don't think a more uh, acidic yeah, it's not, ocean. It's not calcified, right? So it shouldn't right. necessarily if have they, a direct If they were feeding on pteropods, yeah. they'd be uh, yeah. in trouble for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm not aware of any studies hmm. on uh, on krill. Um, but yeah, what if, you know, if it changes their behavior in some way that, you know, they can't aggregate, um, that could be, that could be a big problem. What's the next thing you want to do in, in light of the heart rate or foraging generally, rockwools versus tooth? I mean, what's next for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would love to know how whales find food. What are the, what are the senses involved and also the, at different scales, what's involved? So somehow these whales are swimming across the ocean. Um, they can find where the food is, and presumably they can find where the best food is. So how do they do that? Um, I would love to know. You know, can they? Is there? Can they hear the krill fields? Uh, is there some? Is there a smell associated with that? Do they just remember typically where it is, and it's sort of random or a random walk until they basically run into the good food? Um, I would love to know that. I think that's a, just a cool question. It's, it's one, it's probably the most frequently asked question I have from seminars is how do whales find food? Um, yeah. Well, the hearing is reasonable, right? I mean, they, they are known for their ability to hear, I mean, maybe not krill frequencies, but other frequencies for sure. But what about smell? I mean, what do we know about smell in whales? I, I yeah. didn't really expect you to say that smell might be a way that they're finding it but yeah but or maybe there's um you know dimethyl sulfide there there might be some you know some chemical some infochemical associated with either the prey field themselves or what the prey field is feeding on uh, so on and so forth there there is some evidence in seabirds that they can um, localize on dms
Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology, sponsored by Hopkins Marine Station. They do some really incredible research, and we'll have another sponsored episode from Hopkins later this season. If you're interested in hearing more episodes about scaling, you should check out our conversation with Jim Brown and John Harrison. The episode is called Animal Size and Godzilla's Breakfast, and you can find that episode on our website, bigbiology.org, or wherever you get your podcast. We hope that you'll support the podcast financially by becoming a contributor on our Patreon page. The Patreon page is patreon.com bigbio. Those recurring donations are super important to keep producing the shows you love. You can also make a one-time donation on our website. Please spread the word about Big Biology. Tell your friends and colleagues and enemies about us. Share our episodes on social media or leave us a rating on iTunes. On the next episode, we talk to biologist, filmmaker, avid golfer, and former baseball player Sean Carroll about his new book, A Series of Fortunate Events, where he examines the role of chance in biology. You know, our brains are kind of like pattern recognition machines, right? So if you think of our evolutionary history, it was really important for us to know, know when, you know, fruits would be available on trees, know, you know, where to move at different times of year, etc. So we're always figuring out patterns in nature, and that's a, that's a survival skill, right? But our brains, when we see something like, you know, 26 blacks in a row, we think, well, the next one's got to be red. Even though that next spin of the wheel is completely independent of previous spin. So we get caught up thinking that a truly random event has is somehow influenced by previous entirely random events. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Jordan Greer wrote the script, and Jordan, along with Ajinkia Dahaki, Dana Baxter, and Ruth Demery, manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear. Whale sounds on this episode come from Mark Johnson, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and Jeremy Goldbogen. We also use some heartbeat sounds from an animation made by artist Alex Borsma to explain Jeremy's research.